You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first seven verses. You'll find it on page page 1192 of the Church Bible. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Okay, um, I think most of you have one of these. Uh, Switch it off, by the way, or (laughs) put it on vibrate. Um, uh, I do know people who, for some bizarre reason, they have their phones on their Bible. That's not a bizarre thing. But uh, in church, sometimes I've glanced across and they've been playing Angry Birds or something else. Um, and they're, uh, I've always wanted to t- teach what the Bible says about the smartphone. And I just couldn't find it in the Bible. And then John Piper found it. So I want to share a little bit before we look at this because it ties in with what I'm going to say uh, about um, on the Desiring God website, John Piper has this thing about uh, looking at, I don't think it's him, I think it's someone else who's looking at the, how the smartphone is changing our lives. And it ties in with one particular thing in this passage. So forgive me for a, a, a little bit longer introduction than usual. Six ways your phone is changing you. First of all, we become like what we behold or what we use. And what this phone does, what any smartphone does, It enables you to have very quick, but very shallow and very superficial interactions. Even the phone, you know, the days when, a long time ago when I was a teenager, my parents were terrified of the phone bill because there was a thing called a landline and you dialed a number and your friends phoned and even teenage boys, teenage girls could yak forever, but teenage boys, we could do it too. You'd be on the phone for hours. I'm just curious how many of you last had a phone conversation that lasted more than five minutes, ten minutes. So I I know one person who has, but she will remain nameless. (laughs) But, uh, you know, for some of us, you think about the conversations that we have. And sometimes that's reflected in church as well, isn't it? How are you? Fine. Is that about the only level of conversation that we've had with people? I remember somebody doing some door-to-door work, and they visited Uh, a house not far from here and there was an elderly lady and he came back and he said what a waste of an afternoon I said why he said I only got one house I said why He said this elderly lady invited me in she wanted to give us tea and sandwiches and cake 
I said, uh-huh, and what was wrong with that? And then she wanted to talk and tell us all about her family, and we were talking to her about the church. And I said, what was wrong with that? He says, well, that's not what we were supposed to do. What a waste of time. I said, you're joking. You're absolutely kidding. I'd give my eye teeth to be doing door-to-door and not have to knock on people's doors and instead be able to sit and talk with someone, which is the purpose, really, of what you're trying to do. But we, we become very superficial. Secondly, we ignore our finiteness, our limitness. We think we have access to everything and can do anything. You want to find out something? Google it. You want to know, you want, you know, where do we go here? What do we do there? Uh, we, we think. Maybe, maybe we don't think, but that is the whole idea. That, look, you don't know what to do, there's an app for that. Third, we're multitasking when we should be unitasking. That's why I'm saying even in church, what can happen is someone can be, yeah, I'm listening to the sermon, and yes, I'm reading my Bible on the phone, but I also have, oh, there's a, there's a message for me, or there's a, just have a quick look and see how the golf's getting on. That's happening there. You know, we're all kind of, people are unitasking all the time. Now, I know I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else. You go out for a coffee with someone, your phones are on the table, it rings. Why do you have to answer it? Or there's a beep, and it's a message, or an email, or something. Put it away. Because we, we, we think, oh, we're, we're multitasking. Some of us have better relationships with our phones than we do with our relations. And it's not healthy. Fourth, and this for me is, is a key point, we are forgetting the joy of embodiment. What we mean by that? Second John verse 12 is a really interesting verse. John says this, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, paper and ink was John's iPhone. That was the modern technology of the day. You didn't get more high-tech than that. And he's saying, I'd rather not use paper and ink. I'd rather come and see you face to face. The trouble is, we've become used to disembodied communication. And that can be helpful, a useful extension of our embodied relationships. You know, the text I send the most is, where are you? (laughs) when will you be home (laughs) and when do you want tea or something like that you know just that's fine you can do that but it should never be a replacement for them there are people who now say well I've really got cyber church I don't really need the real church fifth reason that we're given is that we grow careless with our words And that happens all too quickly as well. And then the sixth reason, the one that I want us to look at, we are losing interest in the gathered church. Isn't it strange that with all our time-saving devices, that one of the biggest things you will find in any Christian church is that the leadership don't have time to meet, the membership don't have time to pray, and we don't have time for each other. We are losing interest in the gathered church. We have the whole dynamic of collective worship, which is biblical and hugely significant, because just take one verse, Psalm 22, verse 3, you inhabit the praises of your people. It's why when we are singing, when we are praying, when we are hearing God's Word, 
God's particular habitation is there. When people come and worship in spirit and truth, and the spirit is present, that doesn't happen through a Skype call. The church, the body of Christ, is to meet together. We are to be with each other. We are to worship together. We are to confess our sins. We are to have communion. We are to greet one another. We are to show our love for people. We are to laugh with those who laugh. We are to weep with those who weep. The embodied relationships within the church, you see that happening in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in our corporate singing, and in sermons. A recorded sermon that you put on your, your, your phone, and I listen to loads of those, but it cannot replace and must not replace the gathered corporate worship experience embodied in the gathered people. Because you see, right now, I mean, someone will listen to this. So this gets recorded, it gets put on um, the website and so on, and people can listen to it, and that's great. But they cannot possibly have the experience you have because around you there are other people who are real living people, and I am a real living person. And there's, there's all, there's kind of um, bodily gestures, there's, there's the whole atmosphere and ethos even of the place that we are in. I think there's a problem that's occurring, and it's going to occur more and more, that we do not in value the embodied reality of the local church as much as we should. And even when we do show up on a Sunday, sometimes uh, there's a temptation that we're even checking out on our phones. Think, I mean, the old thing for me used to be of the person who's sitting in the congregation and they're just thinking about the Sunday roast that they've prepared. Or Sunday evening, they're tired, but they're thinking, what have I got to do tomorrow? What have I got to do this? And just disconnected, dis- disjointed from the body. I think that one of the things that puzzles me particularly is uh, a lack of interest, not just in evening services, but sometimes in morning services as well, that you go to church if you've got nothing else better to do and you're, you're full. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians who are full of talk about the community of the church But the gathering of the church is almost an additional extra or something they go along to if they don't have anything else. A number of Christmases ago, I read an amazing thing that I just want to share with you. Several of the mega churches in the U.S., including Mars Hill and Willow Creek, they decided to close for Christmas. Now, Willow Creek said it was so that members could focus on the family and they decided that church leaders decided that organizing services on a, Chris, on a Christmas Sunday would not be the most effective use of staff and volunteer resources. Now, the important thing there was Christmas was on a Sunday. And so they said, we're going to cancel church for Sunday because it's Christmas. Now, I, I mean, I'm still, I still think, how is that possible that you get to that stage. It's possible because church becomes about the personal convenience and comfort of the consumerist Christian, that nothing should be imposed, and that church becomes a business that seeks its own particular brand of consumer. 
And it's amazing how we justify that. It's for my family or I need some personal space are the two most common things that you will hear. That's become so much part of the psychological makeup of the self-proclaimed non-legalistic Christian today. I think that um, we, we need to think more, a lot, lot more about what we are doing. Now, here's a strange thing. I am a pastor in a church, and I work on a Sunday. And according to some people, I work only on a Sunday. That's the cushiest job in the world. But I have to say this, that I look forward to Sunday more than any other day of the week, purely and simply because I get very exhausted, I get tired, and I get discouraged, and I love coming to be with God's people and to worship God. Because although there are problems, although there are difficulties, although there are pains, and I being one of the greatest of them, yet there is something quite astounding and quite astonishing and quite beautiful and particularly encouraging about being with the Lord's people. I saw a, a great poster that I think in Kiltarley Free Church they were using to advertise their, uh, one of their meetings. And I think it was either the evening service or a, a, host, a house group, a fellowship group on a Wednesday. And it just had two bubbles. And one of the bubbles just simply said consumer Christian and the other, or consumer Christianity. And the other said covenant Christianity. And the difference between that being a consumer Christian looks for what they can consume, what they can get, what they can receive from the gathering of God's people. A covenant Christian recognizes that they are meeting as part of the covenant community of God, basically as family. And in the passage you read, there are two things that we are to do. In the NIV, this is, there's a headline there, Instructions on Worship. And it is, and it's, and it's only two things. There are not many instructions on worship, on public worship in the New Testament. It's not like the Old Testament, which is very detailed. But the two things that are mentioned here, I want us to see the value of and to be encouraged in Grace Church and here and whatever church you are part of to be encouraged by it. The first is, of course, prayer. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Something that we often leave to the last. There should be prayer before we come to church, prayer at worship, and indeed, you could argue that our gathering together should be a whole attitude of prayer. That, incidentally, would help you with this problem. Because if I really like you and I'm talking to you and I respect you and we're, we're sitting together and we're talking, it's not showing much respect if I start looking at my phone. Uh, I know I've done it. I know many times, you know, take the iPhone out your own eye. It's got to be the text for tonight. <laughs> but it's there. You know, that's true. I confess, right? I'm, uh, you know, before I get in the car, my family, I confess. Okay, um, th that's, that's what I do. And I know it's wrong. It is wrong. I mean, I'm very convicted of that. 
but we're in the presence of God. Is really God not that interesting? Do we really need to know what that text says? Do we really need to, to look at all these different things? You see how disrespectful it is. Our whole time should be an attitude of prayer. You're, you know, the, you're, someone's preaching, you're not enjoying it that much. Sure, pray, just don't pray it out loud. Lord, make this person more interesting. Speak to me because I'm not hearing. Unblock my ears or open his mouth or get him to say something or shut him up. Whatever. Pray all the time. Not just sitting back waiting for something to happen, but talking to God individually and collectively. Matthew Henry says this, observe the design of the Christian religion is to promote prayer and the disciples of Christ must be praying people. Ephesians 6, 18, Pray always with all prayer. Myself and uh, Annabelle were at Keswick this week. We really, really enjoyed it. I did enjoy listening very much listening to Vaughan Roberts. Uh, and despite all that I've said, well worth listening to on, online. Really enjoyed the praise with two, 3,000 people. But I tell you what I enjoyed more than anything about the whole week was those of us who stayed in the particular hotel and who were involved in speaking and so on. We met at half past seven every morning and then we went for breakfast at eight o'clock. Now I have to say that the, whole, the most enjoyable part of the whole week was the prayer and the breakfast. Cook breakfast every day preceded by prayer, which took away the guilt. It was great. Um, <clears throat> almost like heaven. That's to me, it's a good description of heaven, prayer and cook breakfast all the time. It was, it was just wonderful just to be able to, just that half hour of prayer. I think it's very helpful, by the way, that that prayer is to include praise, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving be made for all people. I think it's very helpful to think of our praise, our singing, as prayer. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. That's a prayer. If you're singing it just because it's a nice tune or you like the words, they feel good, good poetry, you're missing the point. Huge amount of what we sing is prayer. It's prayer for everyone, perhaps here especially for rulers. It's a time of political and social upheaval. Nero, AD 64, probably around, not too far from this particular letter. He asks that we should uh, live, we pray this, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray about the Scottish referendum. Pray about Nicky Morgan, the new education secretary who's a professing Christian. Pray for David Cameron. Pray for the Queen. Pray for Putin. Pray for the horrendous situation in Iraq. It's why we won't shorten the service here on a Sunday morning so that it can be finished by 12 by taking away the amount of prayer that we do. Because if you seriously can't spend an extra 10 or 15 minutes praying for your brothers and sisters throughout the world, again, it indicates a lack of priority. And I think here especially, pray 
for salvation. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If God wants all men to be saved, then are not all men not saved? The Lord is not slow, says Peter, to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's possible, indeed even probable, that what Paul means here is he is saying all kinds of people. He's not talking about every single individual. He's talking about Jews and Palestinians and Iraqis and Iranians and Ukrainians and Russians and rich and poor and English and Scottish and male and female. He's talking about all kinds of people, irrespective of race, status, or condition. But I think particularly here, there is an emphasis on praying that against elitism, against having a congregation and a local church that's just people like us. And that means that you're in Grace Church and you live in Mengis Hill. A day should not go by when you do not pray and indeed walk the streets, literally walk the streets, and pray for the people in the houses. If you're in this church, whatever church you're in, the same thing could be said. Does it burden you that the people around you are not saved? God wants all men to be saved. We pray for peace and quiet and uh, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? Just for us? No. So that people could be saved. Here, in Charleston, in Mingus Hill, in the Ferry, in Ayleth, in Blairgowrie, in Newport, throughout Scotland, throughout the UK, throughout the world, there's no shortage of people to pray for. And that's why the church gathers. We gather to pray together. I can pray on my own. Yeah, you can, but you probably won't. And when you do, you'll miss the encouragement of your brothers and sisters praying. One, son, one morning this week, uh, Animal prayed, and afterwards a lady came up, and, and someone who I greatly admire, and she just said, thank you so much. I so needed that prayer. But if she wasn't at that prayer meeting, she wouldn't have heard it. The wee Saturday prayer meeting we have here, apart from uh, July and August, so many times you get up in the morning and you think, nah, just can't be bothered coming down. Saturday's a day off. And then you come and you sit and a handful of you pray together. And even if it's just 20 minutes that you're there, it's just refreshing and encouraging. So one of the reasons for the gathered church is that we gather to pray. And please, let's make that a priority. I get asked a lot of times, how do you evangelize people? How do you reach out with the gospel? Can you come and teach us this? Can you come and teach us that? And do you know the answer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to reach the people in the apartments over there. I don't know how I'm going to reach my Muslim neighbors. I don't know how to go out into the schools 
I don't know how things can develop in Charleston or elsewhere. And because I don't know and because I don't have that ability, it should cause me to go to the Lord and say, Lord, please help. Please guide. And it's better if we do that corporately. Then verses 5 to 7. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. For this reason, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. The second reason that we meet is for proclamation. People are saved by Jesus, but where will people meet Jesus? And I know it's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people because your non-Christian friends are not going to come to church. Where are they going to hear the gospel? Are you going to tell them? Hope so. They're going to hear it on the radio? Maybe. They're going to read it in a book? Possibly. Do they need to hear it in church? No. But if yours is a church where Jesus is present and a church where his word is taught and a church where he is believed, then Jesus is present especially where his people are gathered together. We can meet Jesus at our home. We can meet Jesus on our own. But the church is especially a place where that should be the case. We are born again through the living and enduring Word of God. And I actually think it's a great idea to pray and to ask our non-Christian friends to come and hear the Word of God. I think one of the problems in evangelism in Scotland is that there have been so many churches where people go to church and they're as dead as a dodo and the Word of God is not really taught. So why bother? Becky Manley Pipper was teaching at Keswick on uh, personal witness and outreach and she really, really, really was excellent. Really excellent. But it still comes down to communicating the Word of God to people and when people come... Hopefully, they also see the community of God's people. Now, it doesn't help if they come into a church and you're all fighting with each other. That's not a particularly great witness. We love you, Jesus, but we hate them. That doesn't work. But when they come in and they see a community of people who are gathered together and it appears there's no reason except Jesus Christ, that is a very powerful apologetic for the Christian gospel. We proclaim this message. There is one mediator between God and men. One God. And that is Jesus Christ. We proclaim his atoning sacrifice, the ransom for all men, even as the Son of Man came not to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. We proclaim the right message about the right man at the right time. I love how Titus begins. If you turn over to that, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. That's one of those typical Pauline, densely packed sentences. And yet he's simply saying this. God promised the gospel before time began. God keeps his promises. Now is the appointed time. 
God has sent his son. His son has died for us. His son has been raised for us. His son is ascended to heaven. And now he sends his church, based on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, to herald and to proclaim this good news. We are to do so truthfully. I'm not lying. I'm a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. You'll find over and over again Romans 9, 1, 2 Corinthians 11, 31, Galatians 1, 20, before God, I do not lie. I am telling you the truth. This is not just religion. This is not just, this is not something that is made up. It's true. And I think that is what's tied in very much with our meeting together. We pray and we proclaim the truth. Now, in verse 8, Paul goes on to talk about men praying, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, and there are uh, verses later on about the role of women and and so on, and you'll be thankful that I don't have time to go uh, into that just now. So, I I do just want to stick with this. Lifting up holy hands suggests a believing approach. True holiness is only attainable through the righteousness of Christ. We come and gather in worship not because we are pure, and actually we don't even come to be made pure. We don't think that just by coming and worshiping and praying and so on, that cleanses us. We come into the presence of the living God because Jesus cleanses us. And I think that's such a huge part of our worship. It is to be holy. It is to be real. How are you coming into the presence of the living God if as you sit in your chair, you are raging with anger about something that you have seen or something that you have heard? How does that, how do you come, you come before God? Do you tell God that? Or does it just seethe within you? Has, has, in other words, has church just become a performance, either that you go to or that you are part of, but it's not reality? I think the reality is when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we, we feel unclean and we feel unworthy and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We haven't time in our, or, or space in our hearts to be angry and furious with other people because we're just conscious of our own need for forgiveness. True prayer, I don't believe, exists side by side with anger. Prayer and disputing. Don't do it with disputing. Prayer and disputing do not go together. I think our attitude to others does affect our approach to God, and it certainly affects our worship. And that, by the way, going back to this thing, is what I'm, I'm trying to say about worship that we haven't the ability to multitask. You can't deal with all your relational problems and all your frustrations and everything else and worship God. You really do need to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. You really do need to turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We are to be churches which take public worship seriously, and we do not see it as an, op- op- as an optional extra 
where we pray to and proclaim Jesus. I believe that many well-meaning and well-hearted Christians, good Christian people, have become thoroughly confused on this particular issue and who somehow see the public gathering of God's people as an event to which they go, perhaps in which they participate, perhaps in which they receive something if things go well. They do their duty, then they go away and get on with life. Whereas in reality, it should be, this is the family meeting. Now, if you're like our family, those words are a dreadful words. We're going to have a family meeting. Oh no, children disperse, try and run away, find something else to do. You know, what are we going to talk about? What's this going to, you know? But what I mean by family meeting is not kind of like a business meeting, if you like. But it's just being together with your family, sharing together. Too much of what we do in church is a quick meal. It's a snack. It's something that we get instantly and then get on with our lives. We know that we need it to help us keep going, but we've got a lot more important things to do. And God says, I want you to come to a feast, and I want you to rest, and I want you to relax. J.C. Ryle, Bishop Ryle of the Anglican Church, said that if we lost the Sabbath in Britain, we would lose Christianity. Now, maybe some people would think that's a bit extreme. I actually think it's not a bad analysis. If we lose the concept of the Lord's Day and having Sunday as a special day, my at least experience has been that Christians get more tired, more worn out, more ragged, more superficial, more discouraged. And we do lose a significant thing. If you're interested in prayer and peace, if you want reformation and revival in our land, if you want people to be saved, then you need to be in the place of prayer. You need to be in public worship. It needs to be your priority. And if it's not, you need to change your priorities. You might have one of these things on here that has a list of things to do. Just make sure that if you're smart enough, you can put in prayer or whatever or public praise or worship. It's a number one priority, not an incidental extra. If public worship is not where you want to be, and that happens to us at times, pray more. But you really do not help, and you will not help, by absenting yourself. Maybe I'll just finish this by reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 10, and uh, well-known words for some of us, but uh, I, I hope that they still have power, and just because words are well-known, still the Word of God to us. Chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, 
not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. May it be that the gathering together of God's covenant people in Grace Church in Mingus Hill Community Center would be a time of encouragement, provocation to love and good works, entering into the most holy place. And may that be true for here in St. Peter's and where in Perth, St. Andrews, wherever your fellowship is, wherever your church is, may it be that on Monday morning, you wake up and you go, oh no, six more days until the Lord's day. I long for the Lord's day. If you have that perspective, then I think it will uh, change and really help in your witness and in so many other ways. God's people enjoy being together, tired and weary though we are, busy as we are. Maybe it's about time. You know, sometimes with these things, when they break, this is going in to the repair shop tomorrow, and it's to be sent off, and they're going to take everything off it and reboot it and restart. What do you want to keep, they ask. Maybe some of us in our lives, what we need to do is simply say, we need to simplify we need to tone down. We need to stop rushing around. We need to do the basics. And one of the basics is to be still and to know that God is God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you call upon us to pray. Thank you we've been able to do that this evening. Thank you that you call upon us to meet together and that we've been able to do that. Some of us come very uh, discouraged and broken, wounded, hurting. Thank you that you know, and thank you that all that pain and all that brokenness has been dealt with already in the broken body of Christ. Lord, thank you for those here who as yet do not know you and who don't understand how prayer and proclamation of your word and fellowship together can be such a uh, a major, the central part of life. Lord, reveal your beauty to such that they may be drawn to you. And we do pray for the churches, the various churches that are represented here. In one sense, there are not many churches. There is one, the bride of Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember it is your church and not ours. And help us, O oh Lord, to live for you. Lord, take away the things that would hinder our worship of you. Grant us an assurance and sense of your presence. Grant us forgiveness as we come into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Renew and strengthen and encourage. And may each Lord's Day especially, we would ask each day, but may each Lord's Day especially be a foretaste of heaven in which we, like the Apostle John, would be in the Spirit. Grant it, O Lord, for your glory, for your sake, and for our benefit. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.